You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I'm not sure what y'all are expecting. I'm not sure what I'm expecting, truth be told, <laughs> out of this class. Um, uh, what I hope happens, I'm not sure what's going to happen in my mind is really going to play out. This is the first of a three-week class, short series. Um, thoughts on our mortality, thoughts on death, thoughts on mores. Um, mores is the Latin word for death. Um, uh, death dying, um, a medicalized death, uh, the, the, the denial of death, um, uh, the way that we don't deal with death well as a culture or individually. I mean, all these things are sort of around in my, my mind and my heart. And a lot of this is because, you know, I'm, I'm a man of a certain age now, pushing 50 and that sort of thing. And a lot of people, you know, I'm feeling my own sort of limitations, but also my, mainly um, people in my own life, my parents, my father, my stepmother, and, you know, other people who are close to me who are older and just dealing with people getting older. Now that's being recorded, so I should probably edit that part out. So, like I, I often say, I just, when I'm thinking about something, you know, I want to sort of think it out loud. And so I try to put a, a class together. What I hope happens is this becomes something like a conversation. I'm not always good at marking my time to leave that, um, but that's the hope. So please do interrupt if you'd like to. Um, come in. Uh, it's better than waiting for the end to go ahead and interrupt at the middle because I have an idea of kind of where I want to go. Um, but if you've got something you want to ask or make a comment, I do hope that happens. Um, the three-week class, we've got some time to do that. Um, and second, sort of a way as preface before we pray, aware that this is a, a subject that's a difficult subject. I wouldn't think a lot of us come into this room casually. And I, I hold that very, with, with great intention, you might say. Um, uh, as I just said, sort of, you know, my own reasons for wanting to think these thoughts, um, you know, have, have a deeply personal connection to it. I dare say probably most of us have that, uh, because it's not a surprise, um, to any of us, and yet it's always a surprise that it surprises us. Um, we're going to die. I mean, I even get emotional just sort of saying that. So, I mean, you're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all dying. Um, we can quip that the only two things certain in life, death and taxes, ha, 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 ha. That's not even true. You know, uh, the only thing certain in life is death. Um, that's been said a lot of time. For a long time, in a lot of ways, uh, uh, because from whatever perspective, at whatever time you live, at whatever age you die, whether that is in the womb or 117, you're going to die. You might not even pay taxes, <laughs> um, but you're going to die. We're all dying. Um, so there's a lot of views here, and a lot of physicians, and a lot of us come in with different perspectives here, so I hope we can have some of that conversation. i got a little bit of art to look at, not just this one, but mainly Hans Holbein's great picture, um, which we're going to look at, um, portrait of the dead Christ in the tomb, made famous in Dostoevsky's um, The Idiot, if you remember that. In some ways, this painting is the protagonist of the, of the novel. Um, but we'll look at some other things in, um, in and out of a lot of scripture. So that's kind of the idea at the beginning of the class. So with that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for for uh, for life, um, for your gift of life, and uh, that you are the Lord of uh, 
of life and that death is not the word that has the final word um, but your word of life for all who believe on you um, mark this time um, this hour and the next couple of weeks with your grace and your mercy and your care um, please lord uh, be gracious to us and, and be present living and active among us so that we would uh, uh, have uh, we would know what we need to know in jesus name amen so just climbing in thinking about death come on in um, couple things. We, you know, death. I mean, I do think it's. A, you know, you don't have to agree with me. I hope you'll disagree out loud if you'd like to. But we, we don't, we don't deal with death well. I think as I look at history, whether it's history of psychology, which is really pretty short. Um, Freud started it only in the sort of 1850s and the Enlightenment 1840s as a, as a true branch, as an ology. So it's not that long. But long before that, there was a a, a natural tendency to try to coordinate off to avoid it to push it away the significant qualification um, uh, it was after the enlightenment um, that things really started to happen there because taking appreciation of of, of life uh, of, of life lived just a few generations ago death was so much more prevalent um, uh, we now uh, you'd be against the law. I'm almost sure of this. Um, if uh, if somebody that you love dies and you you handled the corpse and you wanted to prepare it for burial and you wrapped it and you you tended to it and you even carried it out of your house and you took it yourself to the cemetery to wherever you were going to bury it and you dug the hole and you actually lowered the body in the ground. Um, but that wasn't that long ago. That was the only option. And now. We don't do that. We don't do that at all. Um, we uh, 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 most people don't die in their homes. Most die in hospitals or in homes for death. Um, uh, and extended. And I'm not, not, nothing against that at all. I'm not saying anything against assisted living or nursing homes or whatever we want to call them. Uh, but it's just so much farther away than it once was. Um, planned communities. Um, thought about this about 10 years ago. Think of the planned communities that you can uh, imagine here in Birmingham or around the country. None of them say like, and we're going to put a cemetery right here. None of us plan for death. None of us plan for where we're going to sort of honor the dead or where we're going to put our dead. Um, if anything, when you have a planned development, you want to make it clean and sanitized and you want to Say, well, that'll happen over there. Maybe by the airport. That's a good place for them, right? And it actually is, I think. Um, uh, that was supposed to be funny. I probably shouldn't try to be funny because this is talking about death. Um, yeah. Planned communities, we just don't deal with death well. Um, even our language. And I'm, Again, I'm not, I'm not saying this is wrong because I use this language too. But we've softened the language in the last several generations of death. Death is not our friend. Um, scripturally, this is where I get a little bit emotional sometimes. Um, scripture stands against death from page one all the way to page end. Um, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, uh, it can, in some ways you could say Scripture's story is the story of what God is doing to defeat death, to make sure that death has its death in the death of Christ. Um, that we don't shake hands with death, we don't sort of make it okay um, this is very dated now, but this goes way back to the circle of life and all that sort of stuff from the Lion King, that it's natural and all that. It's decidedly unnatural if you take as natural the, uh, the, the, the life 
that we live in God. Um, God does not, in, 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 in the will of God, there is not death. For his final and full consummation of his will, the new heavens and the new earth, there is no death. Death is no more. And so we, as believers, don't shake hands and say, welcome death, I know you're coming, and so I'm just going to be your friend, and we'll sort of have this detente that we can sort of feel at ease with. It's not okay. It's decidedly discontinuitous, big word, where death is full and final in terms of this world unless there is the life everlasting in God. And the way we've sort of shifted that language, it comes out of the Christian science tradition of Mary Baker Eddy, um, where we use the language of passed on or passing away or passed. And again, we almost I would say every one of us probably use that language. But just to be aware, you know, awareness is a little bit helpful. It's not itself the answer to be aware of something. But that's not scriptural language. It's softening language, where it's not discontinuitous. But passing has this sort of continuity that, well, we have birth, and it passes on, and we move to middle age and old age, and we go to death, and we pass to something else. And it seems very fluid and natural. And the scriptural witness, I think, what the, the true truth is, is to say, no, that's not true. It's not a passing from this to that. It is a start, stop, and then start. There is an end and there is a beginning. And to pass on has this idea, because in Christian science, Mary Baker Eddy and the others, we just have this idea that, that what's material, like our flesh, this isn't what's really real. You know, the idea, it's very platonic, um, uh, of health and of life, that's what's really real. And you sort of pass from the shadow lands of this material world to the really real world of the immaterial, of the spirit, and that sort of thing. And that's not that's not quite it. Like a lot of things that are wrong, it's half right, um, and so it can masquerade, and that becomes very dangerous when we think about it. I didn't mean to go off on this far, but just to think about the language that we use, um, that she didn't pass on, she died. And one of the things that we can do is to mark our language and to call a thing what it is, and call death what it is, that it's not good, and it's not its not of God, and he doesn't want it that way, and it's not something that we make friends with or adjust ourselves to. It hurts. There's a real loss, and it's not passing from one mode of existence to another. There's a final, uh, there's a finality to it that is to be reckoned with. Um, and by doing that, what are we doing? Cat out of the bag a little bit. We're increasing the resurrection and the life, which is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. By reckoning in this world with the finality of death, we amplify and, and, and expand and make higher and wider and deeper and fuller the true truth of, of, uh, of uh, our life, which is in the resurrected life. Christ. So we just watch how we individually and us as a culture deal with death, um, things that were even fatal or at least uh, uh, very dangerous 70, 80 years ago are now treated over the counter, you know, almost sort of, you know, with a trifle. Um, a cut uh, was once, you know, you were, depending on it, it could be really, really bad. And now we just put a little bit of ointment that's 
a dollar maybe because <laughs> you got it's the packaging that you're paying for um, uh, and it's it's nothing it's a no consequence to us but once upon a time it was real the fragility of life the reality of death uh, was was uh, was palpable and so just kind of reckoning with that I think it's important that we as a church do that so one way to do that um, we're gonna die you're gonna die I'm gonna die um, we all alike are going to the grave. Um, I do think that one of the greatest roles the church can play, I'm not making this up, I love to repeat it though, is to prepare each other, to prepare one another for death. Um, if you say, why do we exist? What's the reason for the church? We exist to help each other die. Now that's not a very good sort of mission statement. We just did our visioning process and all that. And I thought about it, trying to put that in there. And it's like, you know, we exist to help you die. Um, but it's really hard to PR that up in a good way to sort of make it work. Um, but a way I've heard it, you know, I love this definition too, that the church is a hospital for sinners, which is true. And I like that. Come and we'll help you heal. But somebody else once said, that's not bad. But what about the church is a hospice? Come to us and we'll help you die well. And I was like, nah, that's something we can come into. Um, what am I talking about? We all have two deaths. Um, as C.S. Lewis said, we all must learn to die before we die. There's the first death and the second death. Um, the first death is death to ourselves. The death um, where Paul would speak in sort of language like um, if we share with Christ in his death and his crucifixion, so we shall also certainly share with him in his resurrection. So that we can take, we can face our physical death with, uh, with a good bit of freedom. I hope that's a thread that we'll follow. I'm just trying to set some language. Uh, so to do that, hear these words. We'll all be familiar with it. Um, the, uh, our liturgies, uh, they, they do two things extraordinarily well. We marry well and we bury well. It's a little phrase that comes out. Um, our marriage service is really, really fine. And so is our burial service. It's really, really fine. It's scripture-oriented to comfort the, the wounded hearts that are heavy with grief. And so the clergy would process, we can all see probably in our mind's eye, uh, someone coming down the aisle here saying these words, I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. That's from John 11. Then I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though this body be destroyed, yet shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not as a stranger. And that's from Job. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For if we live, we live unto the Lord, and if we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. That's from Romans. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Even so, saith the Spirit, for they rest from their labors. And that's from Revelation. So the church, um, it helps us to deal with our death. Echoing Bonhoeffer's words, um, whenever Christ calls us, he calls us to death. Um, and there's that word from Romans 14 that we just heard. No man lives to himself and no man dies to himself. For if we live, we live unto the Lord. And if we die... We die to the Lord. Um, 
how does the church help us? Well, it reminds us of our mortality. It reminds us that we don't belong to ourselves. No one lives to himself. And the good news, no one dies to himself. And we all have something I heard recently. Um, uh, it's a great little way. We all have a scar that should be a, a constant reminder that we don't belong to ourselves, that we're not, in fact, autonomous, a law unto ourselves that we can't be self-sufficient. Does anybody know what our scar is? Navel. Our navel. Isn't that something? Every one of us has a scar. It's right in the center of our bodies. And it's a constant reminder. I heard this about a month ago. And now I'm like, oh, there it is. Every morning, you know, it's like, hey, I'm not, I'm not my own. So, um, think about it. We don't belong to ourselves. It's a constant reminder that no one lives to himself. No one dies to himself, whether we live or whether we die. For those of us who are in Christ, we are the Lord's. And our navel is given as a constant reminder of uh, that our life is not our own. It was bought with a price. Um, so, with all this, um, let's look, and then we're going to we're going to go with Romans after this, and then we're going to uh, open it up for comments or questions, kind of set in some stage. Um, this is a great piece. Maybe I'll look at it later. Um, an artist is a anyway. We won't look at it. Just a lamentation over a dead Christ, famous foreshortening with with uh, uh, Mary, and then on her right would be. Um, uh, the young John, the apostle, and then Mary Magdalene sort of hidden up there. But we're not looking at that one. Um, it's not important. Uh, the portrait of... If I turn these off, it'll help. Um, the body of dead Christ in the tomb. Um, not many artists have tried to capture what Saturday looks like. Um, Jesus died at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon and... And uh, right at dawn, or just before dawn, he walks in. I mean, he, he rises out of the grave um, on, a, on Easter morning, but what we call Holy Saturday, set apart Saturday, the Saturday of death, where Christ is in the tomb, sealed. Um, Hans Holbein, 1521, 1522, something like that, uh, painted it. Not many have that I know of, and certainly nothing quite like this um, with the amount of realism. This is the same Holbein for those that went in England and Scotland and some others, who was the great court painter of Henry VIII. We saw several of his uh, his paintings, the Ambassadors, for instance, which has the great you know sort of skull on that side. Um, uh, it was the, the the famous portraits of Henry VIII or of Catherine of Aragon or Anne of Cleves. These are all Hans Holbein, but this is one from 1522, where he's just coming in early Renaissance, you would call it, or early humanism, if you want to look at it a different way. Uh, to a to a real stark realism. It stands in complete contrast to some of the very unrealistic depictions of Christ on the cross, where it would be very um, not completely. Matthias Grunewald is another one that'd be similar, but but others would be just sort of a placid Christ, would be very peaceful in countenance and maybe not quite real, but he certainly wouldn't be sort of touched with the pain of uh, of suffering, of physical suffering. Um, well, here, not only is it physical suffering, but just dead. I mean, dead. It's probably legendary, but they would say he even fished a, uh, a man out of the river, out of the Rhine River, to use him as a, uh, as a model for, uh, for how to paint death. That's probably not true. Um, but he, like a lot of people then, 1522, would have been well acquainted with death. He would have had to, almost certainly, carry... carry several people to their graves. That's what men did. 
That's what women did. They like if your child died, you picked her up and you carried her out of your house, put her in the ground, and buried her. Um, the portrait of dead Christ in the tomb, just to begin to connect, it's in Basel, Switzerland. I've never seen. Has anybody seen this in? Have you? Um, has anybody seen it? It's in in the art museum in Basel, Switzerland, which you can kind of see here. This is the frame. It's a remarkable piece where it's got depth to it. It's um, it's life size, so it's about a foot by seven feet. Um, so it's, it looks like an actual tomb, an actual coffin, like you're seeing. The fourth wall has been removed, and you can peer in with, uh, you know, in Latin, Jesus Christ, um, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Um, this is the date in Hans Holbein's um, uh, initials here. But some details that come out of just the wounds in his hand and the gangrene. We'll say more about his hands and the 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 the, uh, uh, the, the pierced feet, um, the wound in his side, so the five wounds that are all there. Um, we'll show more of his, his head in just a minute. But the hands are often sort of focused on as we're sort of dealing with death where it's gangrenous now and it's moving into putrefaction. As some of the doctors here to help me, um, where it's actually starting to decompose. But some would even say where the green of the gangrene, and some are even wondering because this is an old traditional way of, I'm not doing the bird, this is a, a sign of a resurrection which is why some, in some traditions, especially the Orthodox tradition, the priest will give the blessing with that sort of movement of his fingers, uh, uh, where the resurrection is coming. Perhaps, maybe, I don't really think this is true, I don't think this is what Holbein is trying to do, but maybe this is in the moments just before Christ was vivified, when the DNA, when the molecules, how did Updike say it, when the molecules went in reverse, um, uh, and the green, the life coming, I don't think that's quite it. But maybe there's a double entendre there, maybe not. But the green gangrenous hands, the wounded hands, with the pooling of blood, um, the great uh, empty stare of, uh, of, of death, with the pointed uh, uh, chin rigor mortis setting in, ars moriendi, um, the art of death. Um, uh, what is it like to deal with our mortality? Um, pause before we read. Questions about this painting? Anything I've said? Because we're going to shift it. Read Romans it, and then leave it open. Is yeah. It true he, um, he was not yet embalmed, or it, I mean, they were going to the tomb to wrap him up, right? Correct. That's right. That's right. So. Um, he would have been put in because there's even a great detail when they go back, and this is in John, when they go back to the tomb to, to properly prepare his body, uh, that, that the, the, the grave clothes are off, and even the one that was over the head had been folded like a napkin and neatly laid, which a lot of people sort of interpret because it was a, a common table manner. Then as it kind of is now, that when you fold it very neatly, like the detail in John says, it means... I'm coming back. <laughs> and so I was like, I'm coming back. You know, the second resurrection, you know, I'm not, I'm, I've been raised, but now I'm coming back for the final time um, for, the, uh, for the resurrection. So they were coming back on, that's why the women went early in the morning after the Sabbath was over when they could touch a dead body again. Along the way, they're like, wait, what are we doing? There's a big rock. Who's going to move the rock? Who's going to move the stone? But then they get there and the stone's moved. So, so no, you're right. Um, Anything else about what I've said um, about this? Hit a pause. Um, yeah, Clay. 
That's right. Great question, Clay. Um, Romans 8, which we'll look at in just a minute. Well, groan is in the pains of childbirth, you know, waiting for the revelation of the sons and daughters of men. Uh, Paul would also say at the end of his great sort of treatise in 1 Corinthians 15 on, on death and life, uh, that the sting... Yeah, mostly, I would say. Um, that's a good question. Um Yeah, the Old Testament treats death more as sleep, which I think we'll look at in the third week. Um, being sown perishable, but being raised imperishable, going back to, to 1 Corinthians 15, and that's what Sheol is, the place of, of sort of sleep or the dead. They're really, it's not really formed. But Paul would say that the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God and Jesus Christ, um, who overcame um, sin and death and the law. Uh, and so as sin entered the world, when the apple was et, so also entered death. The sting of death is sin. The sting of sin is death. Um, I think there's a, a, a correlation there. So that's a really good question. Death came into the world as sin entered the world. Fracture, decay, decomposition. So Yeah, Liz. don't know because um, there's the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life um, uh, some I don't know what I think about this I'm just gonna put that out there some have conjectured that the tree the fruit of both of those trees was was not to be eaten because then there'd be the curse I don't think this is what I, I don't think this is right then there'd be the curse of eternal life in the way that they would have construed it, that they would eat the apple and then they couldn't die. I reread part of the Green Mile thinking about this class. Um, if y'all remember that, the Stephen King and John Coffey, remember the big, big man who sort of healed uh, uh, Tom Hanks's character and he also healed that mouse. Well, then the book goes. The movie kind of shadows this, I think, but I read the book a long, long time ago and I just remembered it. Um, he was healed, but then. The, the last line, what's the last line? Um, uh, we all, we each owe a death. Um, and and none of us, this is an exception for none of us. But, oh God, the green mile is so long. Because now he can't die. Or he can't die easily. And now Tom Hanks's character in the green mile is suffering because his wife is gone, his friends are gone, uh, his children are gone. The only other thing that's still alive is this mouse. You remember that mouse in the movie? It was also uh, sort of resurrected by John Coffey. So I think that's kind of the idea that Stephen King was playing with. It's quite answering your question, Liz. Um, I don't think that's quite it. But there's this sense, whatever it is, I think, let's go back to Genesis. We're not really sure what that means, the tree of life as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, 
what was Adam's and Eve's conception of death? We don't know. Um, and if they would have eaten the tree of life, would they have suffered the fate that Tom Hanks' character was suffering? Well, now I can't die, which is its own sort of torment in a certain sense. That's not our lot in life, whatever it is, when uh, in the twinkling of an eye, um, we, uh, the, the new heavens and the new earth now come. So I don't know. Maybe it's a long way to say I don't know. I don't know what Adam's and Eve's conception of death would have been. Um, it would not have been much because it was paradise. They just knew that now it's really good. Were they going to die? I don't know. Um, I think most would say probably not. Not in the way that we think of it now. So, yeah, Jim? You know, when you said that, it struck me that there is a lot of mystery because Christ wrote or brought Lazarus back from the dead. That's right. But he didn't. He died. He died again, so yeah. Different, yet Christ yeah. Completely. That's right. It's sometimes distinguished between a resuscitation like Lazarus and a resurrection like Jesus. Um, if you're resuscitated, you're going to die again. Um, whether that's you know cardiopulmonary resuscitation or resuscitation like Lazarus, the little girl, I say, do you get up? Somebody else, they died again, um, which is awful. Can you imagine Lazarus? I mean, wherever he was, and he got pulled back into this world, you're like, oh, poor Lazarus. Um, uh, but that's another that's another day. Uh, the, the suffering. Let's let me get to Roman. Let's look at the time. I didn't realize it was as late as it was. So, with all this in mind, I really just kind of want to pull it in today um, and get the feeling felt. Uh, letting Hans Holbein and, and and our liturgy and thinking about how we, we we don't do communities to include cemeteries and even the language that we use about passing on is that softer than than you know, he died. Uh, Paul. Romans 8, you know, called the Himalayas in, 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 in the scripture, um, rightfully so, right in the middle of, uh, of, uh, of Romans, he says this, um, thinking about the longing, the waiting, the suffering, being a subjected, um, another word for that is subordinated, um, uh, to be subordinate. Um, if you're a private, you take, a, you take the orders of a lieutenant. Um, if you're fifth, uh, First, second, third, and fourth are in front of you, and, and, and that's, that's just the way it is. So the, all creation is subjected or subordinated to futility. That's the word that's going to be used, which is the same word of, uh, of Adam, who's now being subjected to futility, where work was good, and now he's going to work the land. He's going to claw at the land. It's just going to be thorns and thistles rather than you know, just an abundance uh, of harvest and yield. So that's all the, that's how Paul wants to impregnate that. And then with thunder, talk about the hope that we have in Christ. Um, so here's Paul. For I consider that the sufferings, in one quick interruption. Um, I need to interrupt myself. If you were in my class a couple of weeks ago, we talked about logitsumai, just my favorite word, I think, in the New Testament. Um, which just means worded, like logos is the word for word, and so we're all logitsamide. Um, there's a summary word in the gospel. What is the gospel? It's that we're worded. Uh, uh, it's we're worded by God in Christ, and whatever he says, that word is creative, and so it creates, and rather than finds, it creates what the word says I am. And so if the word, if I'm worded righteous, well, I could be unrighteous, but if he worded dark and he said light. 
he worded nothing and it said something. Whatever he said happened. And so he worded light and there was light. And he worded um, division of sea and there was land. And he words righteous and I'm righteous. Uh, and that's what Paul uses that same word here. For I consider, for I legitimize, for I am worded this word. For I consider, I am legitimized that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Again, not knowing the stories in this room, but if you sat with somebody who's dying of COPD or, or, or uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or chronic um, uh, CHF, chronic heart uh, failure, um, this groaning and the pains of childbirth, this this groaning, the rattling, the death rattle, the pop, the whiz, the, the, the wheeze. I mean, you just feel death. And then he gives us the hope. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. It's not abstract. It's right here. Uh, who have the first fruits of the spirits grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, same echo, too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Um, we find an exit, and that's all sort of interact. Um, and then as he goes on at the end of Romans 8, um, holding this forth where... Uh, the same spirit who searches the deep things of God is interceding for us on our behalf at the right hand of the Father so that the only thing that can be prayed is the will of God, which is life and not death. It is in that hope that we are saved. And he goes on to say, For I am convinced that neither life or death or angels or demons or principalities or powers nor anything else and all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Um, so here's the last words. Looking at this, Frank Limehouse told this story. I don't know, I don't know the context, so I'm just going to give him credit for it, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk. He was with someone who was dying, or maybe he was with someone whose loved one had just died, a husband, a wife, a father, a child, something like that. And looking at the corpse, Jesus Christ was just that dead once. It's a remarkable word. Jesus Christ was just that dead once. And we who have been crucified with Christ, we who are just as dead as Christ Jesus himself was once dead, so also shall we share in his resurrection. So also 
shall we be just as alive. Mark, just as alive as this dead man who owes is now living. Um, and that's our hope. And it is in that hope that we are saved. And I want to say thanks be to God. Mm. Questions or thoughts? The bells are ringing. Um, ask not for whom the bell tolls, for it tolls for these. Um, maybe a thought or two. Um, let y'all go. Two more. Hopefully I'll find a thread. Um, kind of, that's right. So, Lord willing, right? So, um, so, you fool. You're very, yeah. I am really struck by why we are so want to distance ourselves okay. from death. I mean, I, I think about having to go to the funeral home the day after my mother died. And here are these people in the business, and everything they said tried to reflect hmm. from the fact that I was there because my mother had just died. I mean, you know, it mm-hmm. They're around it all the all time. All the time, yeah. And yet they're in the business, it seems, to shush it up hmm. and act like it <clears throat> isn't so. Hmm. And that is a new thing, isn't it? it, it relatively speaking, yeah. in the course of history, because you couldn't avoid it. Yeah. There was no way to get around it. Um, we physically couldn't leave, and it was just always there. Um, mortality rates and rate of death and childbirth and... You know, all of that. We couldn't leave. Yeah. We don't. Most of us don't kill what we eat. I mean, just around it. So I'll think about that, and I'll try to be more into that next week. So let me pray, Lord. Um, just the beginning. There's so much to think through about death. Um, correct me where I'm wrong, um, but Lord, where you would speak a word of hope, a word of life. Um, uh, for it is in that hope that we are saved. Speak clearly, Lord, to each one of us that are here um, for all the reasons that we might come. Uh, and uh, be our aid, our comfort, our succor, our strength, our shield. Be our the way, the truth, and the life, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.